You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is my first time starting off the podcast. Today, we are switching it up a bit, as you can tell, but we're doing it so that I can introduce a very special guest, Dr. Haley Porter, co-owner and chief compliance and ethical officer for Balance Point Wellness. Balance Point Wellness, just in case you're wondering, is a community-based holistic mental health and wellness center. It provides a range of services, everything from counseling and psychiatric services to equine therapy-related services, as well as wellness services, including acupuncture, yoga, and nutrition services to clients in Maryland. But additionally, I should also mention that, yes, indeed, I do know Haley personally. She's also my wife and probably the better partner, better half here. And I've also worked with Balance Point Wellness handling the legal affairs, you know, really since their inception. So Haley, we're really glad that you could be here today. And we're really confident that today's going to be a fun episode. And actually, I didn't know some of those things about Balance Point. And I've been on your website before, and I didn't know some of those things. So I'm really glad that we got to share some of that. Thanks for having us, guys. So before we get into some of our other questions for you, I was first wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Balance Point Wellness. Like how many offices do you have? How many people work there? I'm assuming at this point that you have a large number of clients who are coming. So if you could just give us some background, that'd be great. Sure. Sure. So we built this practice since 2014. And we now have five offices throughout Maryland. We're in four different counties. And we have a school-based program that is in over 50 Baltimore County schools. And we have a telehealth division. And then as Dan was saying, we have wellness services additionally in each county, each of those offices. Okay. So, so that's kind of where we're located. And our main offices are in Baltimore City, right on the Baltimore County line. We have two offices within Baltimore County and Overly and Hunt Valley. We have a Hartford County office up in Bel Air, and then an office in Salisbury on the Eastern Shore. Let's see. So we have really grown in our size. We have somewhere between 150 and 175 staff members. Portion of that, maybe 100, 125 are employees. We also have a number of contractors, therapists that most of them do this as kind of a part-time gig as contractors for us. And let's see, what was the last question? And our client base. So mm-hmm. we see about, about 4,000, 4,500 clients a week between our offices. So we thought that that would be good to put out there initially, just to say that's a lot, right? It, <laughs> it has grown to be a big practice and a big production. You know, yes. it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to organize and it's a lot of people and, and clients to make sure everything's being run correctly. And we figured you're going to have a wealth of knowledge to offer in all of those areas today. So we're going to pick your brain and see what you have to say. Sounds great. Well, and you know, as I mentioned, you know, I've been able to witness uh, Balance Point grow from its inception to, you know, where it is now. It's been really being incredible what you, Dr. Porter, you and, and Tom Cook is also the CEO of Balance Point and you know, what you've been able to accomplish. You know, one topic, though, that I thought would be fascinating to talk about is the systems that are in place that are needed to make an operation like Balance Point Wellness runs movie. You know, one of the things that I often mention to practitioners is that the best and largest practices are often the ones that grow organically. You know, and that is that there's really no super 
initial plan in place to to be like, we're going to be grow to X size and we're going to do X, Y, Z. Instead, these practices, as they continue to be successful and thrive, have the opportunity to grow. And as they did so, then, of course, their policies and procedures and operations of staff grew organically too. So I wonder if you could talk with us a bit about what are some of the systems in place that you guys have to manage such a large practice? And what was the process that it took to get to these in place? Great question. So I think you start off small, everybody does, doing everything as a practice owner and trying to do all the pieces and stuff that aren't necessarily your expertise, but but it kind of all falls on you. And then in time, things get bigger and you no longer have time to do these different pieces. And it, like you said, Dan, organically grows to a place where you can kind of figure out what your needs are at the time. I think, you know, the, the huge first step is creating policies and procedures. The bigger you get, the more staff who needs to know what they're supposed to be doing. And just because you have an idea of what they should be doing, there's oftentimes a lack of communication to staff so they know what to be doing. And then you can't really hold a staff member accountable if they don't know. So I think that once you get your policies and procedures in place, it's about educating staff. So, you know, we've grown in time to have a whole training department where we do orientations, full multiple day orientations, because just because you have this stuff written down on a piece of paper doesn't mean that people know it and are going to follow it. And that leads it up to very much individual error, which sometimes, you know, clinicians have more skills in areas. Sometimes they mm-hmm. don't, but sometimes this is just your procedure that you, how you want things done. And the more you grow, it's one thing when you have two clinicians working for you. But when you start having, you know, 75, 100 clinicians, you need to make sure everybody's on the same page. With that said, so, you know, orientations, the beginning of it is, is educating people and, and letting them know, you know, what they're supposed to be doing, but then also following up and making sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So it's a second piece to it. And then as things change, yes, it's nice to change up your orientation. You know, it's nice to, you know, a lot of times you email people and you say like, hey, we're making this change in policy. But then you have to remember the person who starts tomorrow, how are they going to know that, right? They didn't receive the email. And so where do you communicate all that? You have all these forms. It's wonderful. But in our digital age, how does everybody access that stuff? And like, know what it is. If you send it out via email, how does the person who starts tomorrow get access to this stuff? So we've created a portal. We've had a portal for a long time that we we access through our website where we have all of our policies, procedures, forms, information, our, our COVID policies, which could change day to day based on counties and what's being required, where people can go and say, I need a resource. I need something. I don't know what release I'm supposed to use. What is mm-hmm. this? You know, mm-hmm. I'm headed to a different office. I don't know if I'm required to wear a mask. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't think that somebody's going to go through their emails and find something that you told them weeks and weeks ago, or a mm-hmm. new staff member is going to be able to find that information. So I think that's a huge piece. And as things grow, you take on more departments. So it gets to a place where you realize you need an HR department. You need somebody who's going to head up recruitment and and managing staff and benefits and all that kind of stuff. It's way beyond a clinician's expertise to know, like, you know, a labor law, really. You know, what happens when somebody goes on maternity leave? Like there's real legal requirements of what you're supposed to do and all that kind of stuff. So bringing in experts in different areas. Marketing. I mean, I've said since the very beginning, it's a business and it's a business of, can you fill your office with enough therapists to fill the time of day? I mean, we have limited amounts of time a day that we can provide a service and generally they're, you know, hour, hour periods of time. So you have 
you know, eight to 10 hours in an office? Can you fill that with therapists? And then can you find enough clients to balance that out? Well, unfortunately, in this world, there's way too many clients needing services. So it's a matter of finding those therapists and needing to recruit them. So that becomes part of marketing, part of HR, part of recruiting, getting therapists in, and then getting the word out that you're open for business and you have all these services and the marketing aspect that goes to all of that. I mean, marketing, a whole different concept that is not my expertise, but luckily I have a marketing department that, you know, understands how, you know, when you Google mental health, like how that comes up, like whether your practice is the first one up there, how you manage Google reviews, how you, you know, get out there to different providers who are the right providers to be targeting to get these referrals in different ways. We do therapy, but we also do wellness services. So it's bringing in people who need nutrition and acupuncture and all those other related services as well. I think I answered that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And and you have my wheels turning a little bit. You know, Dan and I, of course, we've spoken about a bazillion times about building your team and you're kind of talking about that. But I'm also thinking about, you know, because you made the comment, if you are a mental health therapist, like this is beyond your training as a clinician. Yeah. And, and maybe even apart from building your team, which is what you're talking about. If you're the mental health provider who wants to do this, but you're like, I don't know how to do any of that. I don't know how to get an HR department. I don't know how to get a marketing team. Like, I just don't know how to do all that, even apart from building the team. And I think for us, I was very lucky that I linked up with a business partner who's the business side. So he's not a mental health clinician, but he is business and he's run mental health practices. It's very different. You know, I'm a clinician and I have limits as to what Mm -hmm. I was taught in school. But somebody who's trained in business knows the other side of it. Yet he understands his limitations too. And that's why we bring in experts in these different ways. I'll also throw out there a huge piece is creating an org chart. You know, the bigger you get, people need to know who are they reporting to? Who's responsible for who? You know, what's the chain of command? Where's the hierarchy coming in? You know, who do you go to for a question? You get to a place where you're doing reviews of people. Who's doing these reviews? Who's then responsible for remediating therapists who, you know, aren't quite getting it? I need assistance. So I think that as you scale up and get clinical supervisors and directors of clinical services and chiefs of clinical, I mean, it, you know, it grows. You have to really know very straight away how things are, you know, coming down the chain of command. Well, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about organically. This is an example of what exactly we're talking about. You know, when Balance Point started out, you know, I don't think you could have envisioned that you know, this is where you were going to be. I mean, maybe you wanted to go this route, but to to where it is now, you know, it would have been very difficult to imagine that. And so that's, you know, a good example of what it looks like when a successful practice grows organically. This is how it happens. And as you get larger and larger, you're going to have to come up with policies and procedures and protocols and systems to keep growing, you know, if you want to keep growing. Yeah. So talk with us about your role as the chief compliance and ethics officer. What are some of the things that you are looking at on a day-to-day basis in this role? So this role has really grown for me. So as I said, starting this off, I started as the clinical director, the anything related to anything clinical and non-operations related. And it got very big. And it came to a place where really my focus needed to be on writing the policies and procedures. And then allowing my teams to implement those. And then on the back end, checking and making sure that they were doing what they were supposed to. And you do that through audits. There's not really a better way to do it when you're talking large scale. So I'm lucky to have an audit team. 
who I create these audits, be it a chart audit, a psychosocial assessment audit, a progress note audit, a psychiatry chart audit. It just, the list goes on in these audits that we do. And really looking at these policies that we put in place and and I'll speak for a minute on the policies, but just, just making sure that people are doing as you're supposed to. And why is it important why they're doing what you're saying? Because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you create these policies just because like it's an exercise of getting people to do annoying things. But it's, it's really not, right? It's based on state law, federal law. We're accredited by UCHC. It's based on their regulations and standards that we get audited mm-hmm. through. We're also an OMHC, so we get audited by the state of Maryland. And, you know, we, we take insurance. So the insurance companies come in and if they audit their charts and they'll take mm-hmm. back funds if you're not in compliance. So it becomes a much larger scale. Because if you have, you know, a, a selection of people who are in compliance and, and you are audited, that's a problem for a company. I mean, it could mean loss in, in they could be asking for money back right. for insurances. They could, you know, not grant your OMHC license so you can't practice in that way any longer. So there, there's, Huge, yeah. huge reasons why you have to put these audits in place to make sure that the policies and procedures and the forms and all that that I create are being done and being done properly. That's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> One of the questions that I have is, as you are helping to manage this large practice, you know, and you sort of touched on it, but I wanted to kind of get a little more clear answer. You know, you clearly can't be involved in every aspect of the day-to-day work. You know, so what are some things that you guys have put in place at the office for making sure everyone's on the same page to making sure that, you know, everyone's doing what they're supposed to and every, you know, T is being crossed and every I is being dotted, essentially? So you can't. I mean, yeah. you know, and my, and my business partners can't. At this point, yeah. we, I do have additional business partners as well. Mm-hmm. And... And and that's part of the idea is getting together a team of people you trust. When you get mm-hmm. larger, you know, it can't be a one-man show. Like it's just too much for one person. But you know, starting with that organizational chart, you take those top people and you trust them to lead and you trust them to, you know, be in these meetings all day and report back mm-hmm. and let you know. And the communication. It's a lot of meetings and more so than you ever thought going in as a clinician that you would have. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's really understanding what the other departments are doing and working together with it so that everybody's kind of flowing together. You know, there's different levels of it, right? Like, you know, there's there's the strict small office clinical level, and then there's mm-hmm. reporting that to a larger clinical level. And then that's mm-hmm. the clinical level reporting to other chiefs and right. So that everybody's on the same page and we make decisions that are across the board and consistent because nobody likes being in a job where they right. don't quite know what to do and they're not getting consistent messages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because to hear your perspective, you know, and for people listening, you know, that, I think that's one of the biggest differences, right? For someone who's running a solo practice or someone who has a practice with two or three employees, where they may very much still be involved in the day-to-day details and they may very well have their own clients and how different, you know, it is when you reach the kind of level of organization that Balance Point's at. But what I think is cool and, and one of the reasons I think Melissa and I were fascinated to have you on is because... It kind of gives other people a glimpse of, you know, if you want to scale, this is what it looks like. You know, like once you get to the level of balance point, things change drastically, you know, but there's that compliance angle. There's that legal angle that you still have to uh, abide by on a daily basis, you know, which is what, what you do. Yeah, I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about, you know, there are people who are mental health providers and their thing as a coach or a consultant for other mental health providers is systems and helping other mental health providers develop systems. 
And that's a topic I think that comes up and you probably mm-hmm. hear the same thing as well because, you know, there are mental health providers who realize what you're talking about. I can't do it all. I, I don't mm-hmm. know all the stuff that I need to know in order to take my practice further. And I'm only one person and I only have so much time. I know systems are important, but I don't know how to do it. I think that's where those coaches can help. And when we, we have another side to our company uh, assessment and consultation services and you know, through BPW Assessment Consultation Services, we also do consulting work like that, right? Helping these smaller companies who do want to take it to the next level or people who are not in compliance and want to get their company together and just need some assistance, be it from, you know, a coach, from it, some sort of consultant, an attorney that does this kind of work, but learning from somebody and being able to get some, you know, honest advice of some pitfalls in current procedures and policies and ways to improve things. Yeah. So is there one step for someone who's like, I know I need systems. I don't know how to do it. And I don't know where to start. What would that one tip be? I think you get somebody you trust who you can run stuff by, right? You know, it's oftentimes when you are one man show and you're creating this stuff, it makes sense to you, but you need somebody to run it by and say like, is this the right way? Somebody who has some more experience with this, even if it's a colleague who's a step beyond you with it, and they've had some of these you know, trials and tribulations. I mean, everybody does things right and does things wrong in the beginning and you learn from it. It's nice to learn from other people who've been there. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about it, you know, what, in your opinion, are some of the legal or ethical issues that arise for you as a compliance um, and ethical officer, you know, when you have a company the size of Balance Point Wellness? It comes down to data, which is kind of wild to say, right? You know, you go into a profession where it's very much about the human experience. And it mm-hmm. turns out that sure. I look at spreadsheets and everybody's reduced down to a number. And I don't mean for it to be, but it, that's what happens with it. And I think that, you know, you're looking at those areas of compliance, like, you know, and in our audits, we weight things more heavily, right? Like if you don't have an informed consent in your chart and you're providing services, huge red flag, huge problem, right? Huge problem, right. If you're missing a copy of the insurance card yet, you have the insurance stuff written down, you just don't have a copy of it, not quite as egregious, but it's supposed to be in there, you know, (laughs) but that kind of thing. I think that you start finding the things that are real errors, right? You know? You know, chart to bill audits are a huge deal. I mean, that's one of the biggest deals because that's what you're going to essentially, you know, be accused of fraud. You're going to take money back. Should the insurance companies come and audit you? I think that it's so important to make sure, you know, are you billing correctly? Like, you know, there's people who might do it fraudulently on purpose, but I think it's a very, very small percentage of people do it because they don't realize they're doing it wrong. right? Right. You know, and you have to have start end times that match up how long you're, you're seeing somebody, right? Like, you're charging for a 60 minute visit, but you only saw them for 35. Like that's technically fraud. I think that you have to look at some of those things, you know, is there no note for a session? There's no note for a session. It didn't happen. You can't bill for something without a note. You know, we tell our clinicians, you have seven days to get that into the chart, you know, and then we turn around and we look, where did they create this note? But ultimately, if you bill in the billing company, you know, our insurance companies come back, and you don't have a note there, that's a problem. You're going to owe that session back. And if it's done too many times, it's going to be a red flag that you're doing something perhaps illegal, even if you don't mean for it to be. 
Exactly. And I think that's the biggest deal is making sure that you're doing those things properly. I was going to say one thing that's also, you know, it seems apparent also is that, you know, these are all issues that every practice has, right? In making sure these things are being done. But when you get to the size of Balance Point, a company like Balance Point, it's magnified, right? It is so much bigger, a, a potential a huge issue because it's just so much more volume work, so much volume of clients coming in. Um, and so it just gets magnets, you know, magnetized. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and that's the issue is that a small practice, okay, they come in and they audit your charts. You only have a couple of clinicians who've seen a certain amount of people. We see over 4,000 people a week and we bill over 4,000 billables, right? So it's like if a chunk of that, you know, the same percentage of that is off, that's a whole different ballgame. You know, 5% of 4,000 is very different than 5% of 40, you know? Right. Right. Correct. Yeah. Now I'm wondering as you're talking about data and you're like, I know that maybe it doesn't sound real friendly and, you know, it's not, it doesn't sound relational. And, you know, like you said, the human experience is what we're trained in as therapists and as a business owner or someone who's trying to manage a practice and keep an eye on logistics. I'm wondering how you've navigated that with staff, right? Because staff who are trained in being relational and working with clients, sometimes that can feel like you're bumping up against something and communicating the importance of data or numbers. It feels like, eh, it feels a little weird, but it's something that's very normal in it's other fields. It's a hard thing to do. And I think people aren't used to that. And, and especially if you come from a small practice where maybe they didn't even take insurance, like a lot of this isn't done, but you know, we have to, we're required to show data on our ACHC audits every three years. A lot of it is done for a reason. And so how do we make it feel better? We try to celebrate the the good in it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. gift cards for anybody who gets 100% on their treatment plan audits. That way people are excited to see what they get instead of dreading it or just dismissing when they got a good score. I um, like that. Right? Yeah. We've That's tried initiatives cool. where we have a staff meeting every month. And in that staff meeting, we, you know, announce the names of anybody who got a certain score, got better, right? To try to celebrate the data and not always make it such a right. negative thing. We introduce the data at orientation. So everybody receives the audit like list of what's going to be audited in these charts. They're taught about it. So they know it's coming. We've implemented where for the first 90 days, you're under the training department and there are no audits. They are doing audits with you, but it's much more of a supportive type setting. And then in that 90 to 180 days, so up to six months, they're provided additional support by their associate directors and clinical supervisors and doing audits, self-audits together so that they're ready upon the six-month mark to kind of make it onto my audit spreadsheets. It's overwhelming at first to come into a, you know, a new company learning all their stuff, you know, getting this huge caseload. And now you're getting data telling you that you're doing it wrong, right? Like it's not a feel good. So we try to step people into it, providing ultimate support in that first beginning of a time so that they're ready for it. And then they're getting great scores. And it's actually more of a, of a like, how can I fix this? Oh, I I didn't make that one area. You know, I'm going to do it better for next time. So it becomes more, you know, of an exciting like challenge. Yeah, I really like that, you know, because I think it's it's not something that we're accustomed to in the mental health field, you know, but I think about, you know, my husband does IT, they regularly talk about the business and the numbers and the data and how many calls did you take. I have family members who are in occupational therapy fields or nursing fields, and they have a certain amount of productivity that they have to meet. But yet for our field, we're we're not really used to it. Absolutely. I think it's a real struggle, but I think it's the way you present data. 
and you know, making data that's not as good into more of a supportive experience to try to help. You know, ultimately, you're helping your clinicians fix up their charts and get everything correct so that if the state or if insurance companies came in, they wouldn't have issues. I mean, you know, that could spiral out of control at that point with taking back sessions, with board complaints if it's really bad, right? And like, we're really there to support our people so that that doesn't happen. You know, we all know who takes insurance that we're signing up for potential or, or likely audits down the line. And it's making sure that everybody's feeling good going into that. And I think that's just taking a different perspective when it can help. Yeah, I really like that celebrating. And I can see that people would feel more supported, more excited about it if, if they knew that, hey, if I do this, then you know, there's something that I can look forward to as well. Yeah, I literally got there for an entire quarter and wrote, Thank you notes and sent gift cards to people's houses. I with saw it. And written thank you notes. <laughs> I saw it. 40 of I can them. Testify to thanking that. them for their hard work. But it means a lot to people, you know? Yeah. Well, and well, even, I, well, I was going to say, Dan, I, what you're talking about, like those yeah. are the things behind the scenes that people don't see if you're Correct. managing a business. No one sees you writing out the thank you notes and you're like, oh, my living room is full of flowers mm-hmm. and whatever right. gifts you decided to buy. Well, and I think it emphasizes an important point that all the listeners, people listening can appreciate, right? If you run a practice, it doesn't matter the size. What Haley's talking about, whether it's from the thank you notes to the processes she uses to work with the practitioners for the practice and helping them make sure they're they're meeting certain numbers, making sure they're doing everything right. That What she's really talking about is the systems, right? She's really talking about processes and following through and making sure that staff knows what the processes are, knows how to do things. And if they don't know how to do things, you know, going through and explaining how they, they can do it so they do it better the next time. And whether you're a practice of five people or your practice the size of balance point, those are all things that you need to be doing as a business owner. To your point, Melissa, if you run a practice, that's the thing that I think sometimes people forget is that it's not just, you know, in this field, for example, with clinicians with, and clients, it's not just seeing clients. Right. It's that you're running a business now. And so you have, there's things you're going to have to do that's not going to be glamorous. They're going to be brunt work. It's part of being the business owner now. But you sleep easier when you know that mm-hmm. your charts and all your stuff are in order and look good versus that out of control feeling when you're not sure. Yeah. You know, just chancing it and hoping people are doing what they're supposed to do. I think we do that too much as clinicians who are not business minded. And you can't unfortunately just trust people and leave it to chance. Yeah. We've talked about that. Most of them talked about that. But, you know, if you're a practitioner running a practice, you know, you know, really, really, realistically, the truth is, you know, whether your charts are in order or not. And in the back of your mind, you know. And, you know, I think there is sometimes an avoidance game people play where they like, I know it's not right. I need to do it. And it just kind of sits there and sits there and sits, sits there until something happens. And that's to your point. You know, I think that is, that's why it's so important, especially if you want to grow the practice, then you need to get in the habit of doing this the right way the first time. And I want to say there's always issues, right? Like mm-hmm. you always find something that you're deficient mm-hmm. in or you're not doing correctly. But that's the point is that you find it, you discuss it, you put in a plan of correction, and then mm-hmm. you implement that plan of a correction and then check to see if it's been fixed. And that's all they want to see when they come in for a lot of these audits is that as soon as you recognize that you did something, right? Like you didn't bury, bury your head in the sand and just pretend it wasn't happening or know about it and then feel helpless and not do anything. You need to show that you got this, you knew it and you did it. That makes people feel a lot better. 
Yeah. And I think even the role of internal audits, even if you think you have all the stuff in there by doing an audit, you're like, oh, that wasn't in there. You realize to be in there. Or you didn't communicate it correctly, right? Like what I said wasn't what was heard and it was heard differently. And that happens, right? And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. You thought I meant this. I really meant this in my intentions. Now we can correct it moving forward. You know, I, I've had this conversation with practitioners I work with too, where, you know, I'm like, look, you really need to be doing your own internal audits, you know, of your people. And the reason is, is because you do need to be making sure on a reoccurring basis that things aren't being overlooked because, you know, exactly like we we're saying, you don't want to have that be overlooked and an insurance company come in and then there's an issue. And doing that internal auditing process, you know, is something that all practices of all different levels, if you have employees or people working for you, you should be doing. Yeah. So the other thing that I'm wondering about, we're talking about insurance companies, and that is just a thing, you know, that practitioners are thinking about all the time. If they're going to have their own practice, whether that's solo practice or a group practice, that's a hot topic. And it's something that people deliberate, you know, do I want to take insurance? Do I not want to take insurance? And everyone has their reasons for why they do or do not do that. And your practice does take insurance. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the thought process that went into your own decision-making about the reason that you decided to take insurance. Sure. So Balance by Wellness came about because I was working in the emergency room doing evaluations and it was very late at night at like two o'clock in the morning. And I was working with my now business partner, who is my, my coordinator in the emergency room. And we had so many people sitting there that didn't need to be there. We were like, you know what? We should open a practice that provides services and gets services out there to more people. Because this is absurd that the emergency room is being clogged up by people who don't need to be in an emergency room, but just can't get services elsewhere. So with that kind of framework is how we went into things, knowing that we wanted to help more underserved populations, but populations that couldn't access it due to more financial means. So we went in. I mean, it it takes time before you can build to be an OMHC and do all those kinds of things. But we always kind of had that intention that we were going to do that so that we could get services out to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Hence how we've grown and grown in areas that are underserved, that have needs, you know, huge needs up in Hartford County. On the Eastern Shore, there's like nothing. There's like no resources. Bringing psychiatry to these offices, bringing wellness services. Like it's unheard of to have integrative wellness services on the Eastern Shore, you know, Mm -hmm. with this kind of thing. So really being able to get to most people, I mean, to, to a lot of people, we take all the insurances out there and being able to provide a service that everybody can, you know, uh, utilize. You know, I think that fee-for-service practices are great. They're they're amazing, but you can't grow them. You can't scale them in the same way because mm-hmm. there's just not the, I would say need, there's always need, but not in the same way of the need of hundreds and hundreds of people waiting lists that you just can't hire therapists fast enough to fill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Question for you that I have as well is when looking at Balance Point, was this something that when you guys first started it, with all the knowledge and experience that you now have, would you do things differently? Is there are things you would do differently this time around? That's a great question. I think you always would. There's definitely learning curves, but a lot of that learning curves is building up and being able to have the capital to be able to have the systems in place. You're in that in-between game for a lot of time, right? Where you're big enough that you need these systems, but you can't afford them, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you need HR to come in. You know, you need like a chief financial officer because you're in over your head a little bit. You know that like marketing's way bigger than you have time for, you know, all this kind of stuff, but you can't afford it. And, 
you know, you have to build it up enough to be able to have the income coming in to then be able to hire these people to be able to do these additional things. Right. And I think that there's no way on day one, you could have any, all of this together by any which way, you know, but I think that knowing that where you're headed, having that clear strategic goal, you know, hanging in there in the in-between and really just learning stuff. I mean, I Google stuff and I read stuff, you know, and I'm not saying you should just Google things, but like, you know, <laughs> you know, don't, you know I've learned all these types of, you know, systems myself to the best of our ability that we possibly could, you know, until we brought in an expert hiring, you know, somebody, you know, like Dan, like an attorney to give you some hours of time to let you know really what you should be doing and then running with it before you could bring in, you know, inside legal counsel or something like that. Or we had an HR consultant for years that we just paid for a couple hours a week kind of thing, just to give us some advice because we weren't sure. All that kind of thing. Psychiatry, you know, scaling psychiatry is a whole other beast. And and managing doctors and physicians and all that kind of stuff. We have, I don't even know, seven, eight, nine prescribers at this point. Just learning how to do that best. That's a whole nother field too, right? Like we're not used to those quick appointments and the medical side and EHRs that, you know, are needed for the, the psychiatry piece, which is a whole different beast and all of that. I think you just have to learn along the way. But at the core of it, when I sat there in the emergency room that night, I said, we're going to run an ethical practice. If we make less, that's okay, but this will be ethical. And we were in agreement that there are a lot of sketchy things that happen out there. And I don't think it's necessarily because people are trying to, it's because they just don't know better. And we really made a concerted effort to educate ourselves so that we did this the right way. And that ultimately, right, like we were treating Mm -hmm. clients in the highest standard. We hold ourselves to these highest standards, even if the pay might be less. I think in the long run, you end up on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think you emphasize a good point, and we we've said most and I have said this before: is you need to know what you what you don't know. You need to know what you're good at. You need to know what you're not good at when you're running a practice. And if there's not something you're good at, you don't know. You know, trying to guess at it in this field is really risky. And you have that's to acknowledge where, it, and right, you have to correct. look out. For, you have to ask for help. I mean, there's there's podcasts like this, right? There's, right. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, blogs people write who are experts in this area. You know, like Melissa said, consultants and stuff who can come in. They don't have to run your practice for you, but they can answer some of those questions that you're not quite sure to make sure you're doing this and you're running. You know, doing it along the correct path. Well, thank you very much for answering our questions. One of the last questions we always have from people is, you know, if people want to get in touch with you or Balance Point Wellness, or if they want to reach out to Balance Point Assessments because they, they perhaps want to talk to you guys about your services, how can they reach out to you? Sure. So you can always reach us on our website, bpointwellness.com. And then... Our assessment side is bpwassessments.com. And there are links on there to send us questions or whatever it might be to contact us. And yeah, we, we love collaborating with people and, and, you know, helping to really make sure that we're all practicing to the highest level, you know, and the highest standards Mm -hmm. so that patients get the best treatment there could be. You know, it's really not fair to not provide people with the best service possible. I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm taking over Dan's usual job today and closing us out. Thank you, Haley, for joining us and for sharing your wealth of information with us. You're welcome. We're glad for everyone who's listening today. Be sure to check us out on the website. And we're curious to hear what are your thoughts and questions from today's podcast. 
Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.